0: Well, hello and welcome. This is Pastor Ken Ortiz and uh, this is my podcast called What the World's Coming To. And um, what I try to do is address topics that are of particular interest to the Christian community, particularly when we talk about events of the end times. Uh, Are we living in the last days and are there events that coincide with what the Bible said would be uh, the characteristics and the events of the last times? Well, I certainly believe so. But today I want to take a little bit of a, a, a detour from that, only a little bit, because um, uh, if you've looked at the title of this podcast, uh, you already know that I'm stepping into a, uh, well, walking into a minefield, because I know that there are many people who are passionate about The Chosen, uh, some to such an extreme degree that I, frankly, am quite concerned about it, um, and it leaves me with tremendous questions about what's going on in their personal spiritual life. Uh, but I've taken titled the podcast Why I Stopped Watching The Chosen because I actually stopped watching The Chosen and I'm pretty sure I I can't Restart watching it. Um, I began watching it actually after the urgings of many mature Christians I know who watch it, and they expressed to me how much they enjoyed it, and and uh, I thought, okay, uh, maybe finally somebody is doing a music a, a, Bi- a Bible based uh, movie that uh, really does a great job of depicting the Gospels and particularly in the, the the ministry and the life of Christ. Um, so hey, I'll give it a shot. So we started watching it, and uh, we couldn't make it through the first episode. Uh, my wife and I both just said no this this isn't working and so we stopped and then again, we were urged to go to try give another try and so we tried again and we got about the same spot and we stopped so finally, uh, some very close friends of ours who we have a lot of respect for really urged us to to dig in and look at it and and so we did and we actually watched uh two seasons and um uh I can quite honestly tell you, I particularly as we got to the end of that, I, I just was really kind of so bothered by so many things, I just couldn't bring myself to continue on. Our, our dear friends asked us, well, how, what did you think about it? And I had to say, I like the book a lot better than the movie. In fact, um, it's like so often when you uh, read a great book and then you watch a movie that's supposed to be based upon the book, you realize that it's based loosely on the book. And I would say The Chosen is based very loosely upon the Gospels. And that's really uh, my concern, because if you're talking about a secular book and the uh, movie based on it is loosely associated, it makes no real difference. But when you're talking about the Word of God, I think we have some serious concerns, or at least we should have. And I think what's bothering me is that so many of my Christian brothers and sisters aren't as bothered as I am. Now, I've known as I've begun to speak out a little bit about this that I found that there actually are a large number of Christians, especially people who tend to be like me, I would describe myself as a, a biblicist. What I mean by that is I, I take the Bible literally and I take it all so seriously. In other words, I don't just simply say I believe it's the inerrant word of God. I believe that uh, every word uh, matters and that uh, I need to pay very close attention and put a lot of energy and effort into trying to discern what exactly is Christ instructing and commanding us to do. And so, you know, I mean, I, I take it literally, I take it seriously, I want to make it to be the roadmap of my life, because I believe the Bible is sacred. I, I mean, I, I I wouldn't even, I couldn't even imagine uh, messing around with it. In fact, I'll say I, that's one of the problems I have with so many paraphrased editions, um, that there are a lot of paraphrased editions, uh, going back to J.B. Phillips, or, uh, you know, uh, letters to street people, or even more recently, The Message, which, I mean, they have some parts of them that are, um, that they, they I think they've do do some really uh, masterful and even magical plays on certain passages, like the way they present them in a language in a way that's really helpful. But then there are other places where I feel that they almost savage the scripture by by basically uh, toning down what's said to make it more palpable to current audiences. And whether they will admit it or not, the reality is that people who write books, who make movies, who record music, uh, are super conscious of the audience and how the audience is going to respond respond to what they say. And yet I found that, for example, as a pastor, as a teacher, it should never deteriorate into a performance art, the idea that you're sharing the scriptures in order to uh, wow the audience. I don't see Jesus having done that. People were quite offended with Jesus on several occasions. Uh, Certainly it's true of John the Baptist and of the prophets in the Old Testament. So uh, the responsibility is simply to declare what God has said to say. Uh, And we find that so often the prophets struggled with that because especially Jeremiah knew that it was going to bring some really negative uh uh flashbacks and um or I should say pushbacks and so as a consequence you know he his called the weeping prophet because he was really uh struggling a great deal of time but at the end what really was important was he was faithful to say exactly what God Told him to say so. When Peter says the scriptures are given to us and they're not open for private interpretation, I think that people who write books about the Bible and or or especially fictional accounts are fictionalized accounts in order to make it more real or make movies like that. Really n- need to recognize that there's a danger that you're crossing a boundary here. That it's not open to private interpretation. So you know, it's it's not it's not okay to begin to put words into the mouth of Jesus or any of the biblical characters, that you can't in some way rationally explain that they would say that instead of saying, well, I just wanted to make him more real. Well, this is obviously what makes it hard for me to view most Christian movies, uh, read, uh, and I have a hard time even with most Christian fiction, because, I mean, I'm not as extreme as A.W. Tozer, who I think was a modern-day prophet, but A.W. Tozer said that if it's fiction, it's not true, and if it's not true, then it's a lie, and so he was pretty hard on people who write Christian fiction. I, I'm i not nearly as stiff or intense about it, but I do think that if you're going to write a fictionalized account, make sure that uh, you're making it clear that you're fictionalizing, and and secondly, don't go too far. Don't get carried away or feel like you have a blank canvas that you can begin to fill in, which, again, I think The Chosen has done. I think it's doing it increasingly as the popularity grows and as they seek to broaden the audience. I think that it becomes increasingly, uh, they feel an increasing freedom. Um so I, I would say that I even struggle with even some of the children's cartoons that are put out to predict, depict Bible stories, because um, I think that parents need to evaluate them very clarif- carefully so that we don't begin to put into our mind concepts about the Bible and biblical characters, uh, especially Jesus and the prophets and so forth, that are really fictionalized uh, imaginations of the people who wrote the stories or made the, the cartoon and not what the text actually says. Do they stick close? To the textual account, so that our kids can grow up watching things that help them fortify their faith, and they don't have to later on be clarified as saying, "Well, that was just a um, a pretend story." Don't pay attention to it. Sadly, many Christian books are like that. I mean, one that was very popular, and I found, I was amazed at people who were excited about it was the book *The Shack*. The Shack took liberties that I thought were really egregious, and when you start characterizing uh, the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the son has different uh, human characteristics, and you can rationalize and say, well, that was what the writer was doing because that was what he felt about them. But as you begin to dig into the background of the writers, you begin to find out that they took more than literary liberty, uh, but basically they have a different view of the scriptures. The writer of The Shack has what I would call a low view of the inspiration of Scripture and uh, follows a, kind of the Borgian school of theology, which you can check that out on your own. But um, basically, we should not feel that we can take literary liberty with the Word of God. And, and I think sometimes the pulpits become guilty of this. I mean, I, I, I'm i concerned that many times when I try to explain a passage of Scripture that I don't so humanize it or put it so much into the context of my own thoughts and feelings that the people go away with a misconception of what Scripture says. Um, so that's why, like I say, what I've discovered when I've done background research on books like The Shack or movies like The Chosen, I find that, in my opinion, the writers, whatever, regardless of what they say, actually have a very low view of Scripture. They're not staunchly literal, or if they are, they are ignorantly or unintentionally uh, feel they have the freedom to play around with the storyline to make it more interesting and to appeal to a broader audience. Personally, again, and maybe I'm being repetitious here, but I feel this is very dangerous because inadvertently you can be presenting a different Jesus, which leads people to a different gospel, uh, which Paul wrote to the Galatians, we'll talk about that later on, which he said essentially is no gospel at all. Now, I know that some of you are going to say, but I know people who have really been helped by watching it. Okay, I get it. God can use it. God can use anything. I mean, God used Eastern medita- meditation and in and, and, and Hinduism to start me on a journey of looking for God. And uh, I certainly don't endorse either one, but nonetheless, that was true in my case. Uh, Jesus Rock in my day, or Jesus Christ Superstar more particular, made Jesus hip and relatable and all that stuff. But... When I found the real Jesus, I came to recognize that what they were presenting was something that wasn't in the Bible. It was a basically, basically a blasphemous twisting uh, of the Bible. I think one of the most classic ones, of course, not only the movie, which came out later on, but the book by Nikos Kazantzakis, The Last Temptations of Christ. and The movie was just not a good movie, but the book was just sheer heretical blasphemy. I mean, it had no historical basis. And the same thing can be said about the Da Vinci Code. These books are out there, and people actually believe that they represent the true gospel or the true uh, truth about Christianity. Um, and there are those people who start there, like I had a friend who read the Gospel of Thomas, one of the uh, uh, Gnostic gospels, and it actually started him in the journey. And then he says, when I began to read the Bible, I realized that the, Bible, the Jesus of the Bible is a completely different person than the one I read in the Gnostic Gospel. So, I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen, but I'm just saying is that I don't believe that the chosen, or at least the question is out there, does the chosen present the real Jesus? Does it portray him in a biblically uh, correct way uh, and consistent way? Well, I think part of it, you have to go back to the uh, writer himself, Dallas Jenkins, and really hear uh, his own words. I mean, he— he, and you can find this online. I think it's pretty available. He, he did an interview or basically did a, a webcast where he responded to criticisms because he made the comment or referred to uh, the company that he works with, which is a, uh, from what I understand, is an LDS or Mormon-owned uh, company. It's not owned by the Mormon Church, but these guys are, are Mormons. And in fact, I, I kind of did some background search, and I, I found out that they're featured highly in, in Mormon publications for their work uh and their success in 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 their uh industry that where they're at their production company and so forth but in it he made the comment that uh he referred to them as his christian brothers in the lds church and a, a lot of people took issue with that because if you know anything about the lds church you know that there's a real problem the jesus of the lds the mormon or a religion is not the same jesus uh, and i'm not talking about individuals, because I, people can say anything they want, but I'm just saying, if you're a good Mormon and you follow Mormon theology, then the Jesus you follow is not the one that's found in the Bible. But here's what uh, uh, Jenkins said when when he was responding to those criticisms. He said, it would be just dumb for me to say that LDS, that's Mormons, are Christians, as it would be to say that all all evangelicals are Christians, or that all Catholics are Christian, or any other faith tradition. Uh, I, I just want to say that that's somewhat of a doublespeak kind of statement because it, it really confuses the issues right off the bat. He goes on further on to say, and it would be also dumb for me to say that none are. That that's also a level of arrogance I don't possess. So he said it would be dumb to say that none of them. I mean, what I'm saying is right off the bat, if, if you try to follow logic and argumentation, he's confusing everything right off the bat. It's like, It's not whether all evangelicals are Christians or all Catholics are Christians or any other faith tradition, whatever that means. That's all inclusive, I guess. Uh, But basically, it's not arrogance to say that some religious groups believe in a Jesus that isn't the biblical Jesus. That's that, I think you can say that and I don't think that's being arrogant at all. I think that's rather being informed and honest. But he goes on, he says, "When I've talked about my brothers and sisters in Christ and when I've talked about LDS folks that I know who love the G- same Jesus I do, And I think that's important. LDS folks I know who loved the same Jesus I do. I'm referring to some of the friends that I have who identify as LDS, who I've gotten to know very deeply over the last few years in particular. And now, I, I, question is: They identify as LDS. What, what exactly does that mean? They identify. We hear all about people. I identify as a man. I identify as a woman. I identify as whatever. They identify as LDS. Doesn't that mean that that's your identity? That your identity, your faith, who people know you are, is is that identity? So they, I, their identity is: They are LDS. They are Mormons. Okay. I'm not saying they're not nice people. They're probably very nice people. I've met some wonderful Mormon people that uh, were nicer than a lot of Christians I know. And I've met some that Mormons who are not nice people. I mean, that's kind of goes without saying, but he goes on. I've had hundreds of hours of conversations with them. And I stand by the statement that those friends of mine that I'm referring to absolutely love the same Jesus that I do. Okay. He's saying they can be People who identify as LDS Mormons, they're, they're full Mormons, and, and certainly they are profiled in Mormon literature uh, publications as being good old LDS boys, fine, great. Uh, but then he adds, I know plenty of evangelicals who I would say don't know the same Jesus that I do and don't love the same Jesus that I do. Okay, that to me was just a cheap shot. You know, it's, and he's, he's creating an equivalency where there is none. He's saying that one they're both the same, that a Mormon who says he knows Jesus and an evangelical who says he knows Jesus are basically the same thing because they both claim to know Jesus. And that, that again, obscures the whole point. I feel like he's dodging the question and obscuring it, or else he's just very confused, which may be the case as well. But I think you have to ask the question, what do Mormons believe particularly about Jesus. And uh, and if these people identify as LDS, is the Mormon Jesus the same Jesus that the Bible talks about? Well, let me run through just a few of the uh, basic views that are taught as official Mormon doctrine and that in order to be a Mormon who's baptized in the temple and all this sort of stuff, you have to profess that you believe. I mean, to get married <coughs> in the Mormon temple, you have to, or in a, in a Mormon relationship, or be part of a Mormon congregation uh, in good standing, you have to say, these are things I believe. And what do you believe? Well, they first of all, they believe God, God the Father, is merely an exalted man who earned his position by good works. So God the Father, who Jesus said, my Father in heaven, in Mormon theology, is not the absolute almighty God in the absolute and almighty sense, that he is just a God who, by doing good works, earned the position of God. So right away, you know, we have to sit back and say, how can God who is uncreated, when he says that I am my, I, am that I am, which is probably what the word Yahweh means, uh, when he def- identifies himself as I am the all, it literally means I'm the self-existent one, I don't derive my essence or my being or my person from anyone or anything, I always have been, I always will be, and the book of Isaiah he repeatedly says, and there is no other, there is no one else, I am it. So right away, we we have a problem. If you're a Mormon, you believe something about God that the Bible completely contradicts over and over and over again. So secondly, Mormons believe that Jesus was a God, but not God himself. So here, Jesus again is a man like you and me who worked really hard and rose to Godhood position. Now, the whole reason that Joseph Smith came along, by the way, is because Jesus got crucified and didn't finish his work. And even within most Mormon circles, they compare Jesus's death on the cross to Joseph Smith's murder in in the jail where he was being held. Um, And uh, he basically was shot to death. But We might also note that he had a six-barrel revolver with him, and he was able to unload that into those men who were coming in to kill him. So he took a few guys with him when he went out. Quite the difference of Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And Joseph Smith firing away his handgun, taking out his attackers until they finally shot him and overpowered him. So I always wondered, how do you make that comparison? But thirdly, they believe that Christ was pre a pre existent spirit, uh, and he was the spirit brother of the devil. Now this is if you don't think I'm think I'm making this up, but you know, it's found in the Pearl of Great Price in chapters four, Moses four, one through four. Later on it was reaffirmed by Brigham John Jones, or Brigham Young, excuse me, who's the in his journal and discourses, volume thirteen, page two hundred eighty two. But where he tells him that tells us that Jesus celebrated his own marriage to both of the Marys and Martha, whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified. So not only was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we just told the other Mary in the scriptures, and to Martha. <laughs> well, but. Um, uh, you know the Mary. The, these are obviously Mary, the 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 uh, and Martha, the sisters of uh, of La- Lazarus. That he was married to all of them, but he also had children with him. That he and basically so that he he could see his seed before he was crucified. Now most people don't know that, and certainly the Mormon missionaries who come to your house aren't going to tell you that. But it's important that you understand. This is. Their scriptures. This is their word of God. This is the foundation of their faith. See, for 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 Mormons as well, salvation is by grace alone. It, excuse me. For, salvation is not by grace alone, because grace is not enough. Uh, that and which means basically, Jesus's death on the cross was not sufficient. You have to earn your salvation and your godhood in the same way. They will tell you that Jesus did. Jesus became God by good works, and you get saved and become a God also. That's the goal, ultimately, he's become a God like Jesus by doing good works. Well, I believe me, I am not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. <laughs> you can do the research on your own. But I, I'm left with this question when Jenkins keeps on referring to his, his Uh, Friends who identify as LDS and who at the same time uh, know Jesus. The Jesus that's described in the Mormon church is a different Jesus. That either Jenkins Mormon friends are really, really bad Mormons who don't know what the Mormon church teaches, or he's being gamed by them, or he is self-deceived. Sometimes we can hear what we want to hear, especially when these guys are funding your project. Maybe you just hear things in a more agreeable way, rather than stopping and saying, wait a minute, (laughs) that's not what the Bible teaches. It's just not possible to be a good Mormon and be a true follower of Jesus. I'm just putting it out there because they're two different Jesuses. Yet Jenkins says the ultimate source of truth, he says, is the Bible. Now that's an interesting way of putting it. The ultimate source of truth is the Bible. Does he have other sources? I mean, like say the Book of Mormon. Because that's kind of a classic Mormon missionary line. Well, we believe in the Bible. We believe that it is the ultimate source of truth. And then they might say under their breath, as far as it goes. But the Book of Mormon is an additional revelation. It takes you further. Well, first of all, understand if you've ever read the Book of Mormon, there's not one single Mormon doctrine that comes out of the Book of Mormon. It's a story. It's not a very good story, and it's certainly not historical. I mean, the whole issue of DNA has kind of blown the Book of Mormon's claims right out of the out of the room, but the bottom line is they claim it is an additional revelation, the completion of the revelation. In the same way the Muslims say the, the uh, Quran is the completion of the revelation, they will say that Jesus is a prophet as well. And that's essentially what we find Mormonism is saying. They just define uh the prophet is somebody if he's does a good enough job can one day become a god and have his own earth and have his own world and go through his own creation uh story the way he wants to write it i guess but we have to wonder re- that uh, that uh when he <laughs> it goes on in the in this in this uh response by saying while viewers the chosen will glean truths about jesus from the show again gleaning truths from the show do do we Do we know what the word glean means? Gleaning is what happens after the field has been harvested and then people can come behind and pick the fruit or uh, vegetables or or grain that was missed. Uh, You can glean some truth. So basically he said there, if you watch the chosen, you're going to get bits and pieces of the truth. But then he goes, he says, pastors should be the primary figures in helping Christians understand the Bible. Well, essentially, this is kind of double talk because why would I watch something that only offers me snippets of truth and then I have to go to my pastor to find out what parts of that story weren't accurate? The problem is that some pastors are promoting it because apparently they don't understand where it's inaccurate. He goes on to say, I believe that is my, that's my job in my personal life I believe that's my job in my personal life. Uh, I believe that it is your job as well to get to know the authentic Jesus and the real Jesus as much as humanly possible. Now, again, I know you're thinking I'm being pick Unish, but words mean things, and I don't think we should ignore words. As much as is humanly possible, to get to know the authentic, it, it, essentially by saying humanly possible, you're saying that it's not possible or there's real limits to how much we can really know the authentic Jesus, the, to know the real Jesus. And therefore, uh, I guess that he's at liberty to play around with the vision of Jesus, or who, who Jesus actually is. Because when it, he goes on to say, when it comes to the content of the show, it's not my job in the show or outside of the show to try to give you all the different versions of Jesus. I don't want any different versions of Jesus. I just want the real version. I mean, again, he makes these statements, but that's all double talk. He says, or the wrong things that people say about him. The Chosen has all sorts of wrong things about Jesus, And then he goes on, it is my job as a believer and as the creator of a show that is being seen by so many, (laughs) to try to get that right, to try to portray Jesus accurately. Well, this is the problem I have in a few places I can accept his portrayal. I mean, I thought the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus was interesting, Um, and I I I overall liked it. I guess I could say I thought, well, yeah, that's a that's a touching. It, it could have been something like that, and the conversation with the Samaritan woman. Um, it was it was okay. It, it was sort of off. I felt like there was uh, <laughs> some real pivotal moments in the biblical account that just kind of got treated very lightly. Uh, But really, I'll be honest, what really made it impossible to go on was his portrayal of the events leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, because in my opinion, what he did bordered on blasphemy, uh, and it was pretty heretical. And I mean, I don't want to call him a heretic. I just think I don't know where anybody could get the audacity to so rabidly, grossly, misrepresent and appropriate the account of the Sermon on the Mount the way it was portrayed in The Chosen. Well, I'll get to that more in detail in a second, but in case you haven't watched it or you didn't, you you weren't shocked. Let me summarize really what I would say are are my bottom line issues. The first thing I I, I really noticed right off the bat was a, a Tremendous mischaracterization of many of the biblical characters, uh, not only just Jesus, uh, but John the Baptist and the apostles. I mean, when it starts off with uh, Peter and Andrew, I call it the Peter and Andrew Fight Club, That they're portraying Peter as this pugilist who hangs out in bars, he gets drunk, he collaborates with the Romans, he violates the Sabbath. Uh, and it's even implied that he's committed adultery in a very subtle way. I mean, you're basically really attacking his character in a very major way. And it's interesting because Andrew is the one in scriptures who seems to be the more moderate one, and Peter is the one who's who's uh, more aggressive and outspoken. Uh, and yet, they've kind of created this whole different dynamic. What I'm simply saying to you is, their characterization of Peter, Peter and Andrew are based almost exclusively on fiction, uh, and and it, it's it's a portrait that doesn't really jive what we, we know with the cultural dynamics of first-century Judaism in the places like Bethsaida and Capernaum. Um, you know, I mean. Even implying that there was a red light district <laughs> in in Capernaum, I mean, uh, you just—that's just so beyond the pale for me. Uh, Showing Nathaniel was this failed architect who goes out and gets so plastered drunk that he passes out leaning up against a tree. Again, you have to understand that drunkenness is strongly condemned in Judaism. Always has been. It was considered to be one of the worst character flaws that a person could have, and and so uh, you know Jews have the lowest percentage of alcoholics of any ethnic or cultural or racial group in the world for this very reason but uh in John one four seven basically, where Jesus refers to Nathaniel is an Israelite in whom there is no guile i mean it's he's basically saying this is a a man of true character, a man of true integrity and but Nathaniel is not portrayed that way. Uh, And Jesus is saying this of him before he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And what's also being missed here and not really covered adequately is the fact that Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and and John and James were probably, the scriptures strongly indicate that they were actually disciples of John the Baptist, whose message was to repent. you know to turn away from your sins because the kingdom of god is coming those who followed john were people not who were hanging out in bars and getting drunk and going into fistfights for gambling purposes and all the rest they were people who were very serious about their faith and really seriously seeking after god Um, but i would say also john the baptist i it just kind of galled me where they referred to him as creepy john john was not creepy Jesus said he was the greatest man born among women. So Jesus is essentially saying he is the greatest man who has lived on the planet up till this moment. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus holds John in the highest regards, and and here they're referring to him like his followers call him creepy John, and I mean and and then again it's Jesus and him uh, it's implied that Jesus thinks he's being way too political and that he doesn't care about political dynamics and the whole conversation between him him and John is not only nonsensical but it's non-biblical because we do know that there was communication between John and Jesus and it had nothing to do with this it was John saying are you the one or should we look for another and Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah of the signs of the messiah to let John know, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was promised. and and But I would say that the thing that broke me was that scene of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I won't even go into the thing of Mary Magdalene backsliding and going into a bar and all that kind of stuff. I mean, again, why? Why is that even there? Why do you... Where do you get that? That is total. You have to totally create that out of nothing. And again, I come back to something I said earlier: the Bible is a story that's complete. It is finished. I mean, Jesus, it is the word of God. Um, And what you're doing is you're saying it. It's a blank canvas that I can draw in any side sketches I want, and you are essentially adding to the word of God. And you. Can, if somebody can say, well, I don't mean for people to replace the Bible with it. Whatever you mean it or not, that's what's happening. And that's what's staggering to me. There are whole fellowships that are beginning to make this the reference point. I had a guy write to me instead of going to Bible study group and, and they're referencing uh, the, the chosen instead of scripture to talk about the living out of their Christian life. But what got me about the Sermon on the Mount i'm beginning to rant sorry sorry but what got me about it was they have this scene where jesus disciples are walking around passing out handbills now aside from the fact that paper was in unbelievably expensive in that time papyrus or even parchment so people didn't put things on handbills and pass them around they didn't write little notes and stick them in their pockets (laughs) paper was a very valuable commodity but you, you know they have they have uh they have this huge stage sound stage that's built there. I mean, it's an imitation of something you would have seen at Woodstock. It's almost like the same kind they're trying to draw some kind of parallel. Jesus at Woodstock. You know, he's got this the stage that he walks on, you know, and it's it's it says Jesus was was in the field, he was on the hill, and he told the people to sit down. I mean, there's nothing that I can draw a parallel between the movie or the program and and the Bible. And then Jesus gets color draped by the women who are following Mary's mother, Mary Magdalene, and, you know, whoever else was there. I mean, it's like they basically are trying on different colored sashes to see which would work best with him on stage. I mean, I can't even imagine that Jesus gave thought to his wardrobe, but i love the comment from mary magdalene in the in the program in the in the show basically she said he should wear the blue sash because it softens his edges and then she says you know you can be a little edgy sometimes i mean my goodness gracious <laughs> what is this all about but then also there's a the whole thing leading up to it where he's collaborating for weeks with matthew who is portrayed as a guy with asperger's now again uh, maybe we got to include one of everything that's why we have a a african-american jesus i mean a joseph which was so highly unprobable and i'm not saying that but nonetheless why is that in there but nonetheless matthew is there to help him get the message right and they're writing and rewriting and i, I mean matthew edited what did jesus say about his message John 12, verse 49, this is what Jesus said. I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. What you've just done, Mr. Jenkins, is you present it something that is a total contradiction of the words of Jesus. What most of us conclude when we read the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus sat down and he just began to talk. And people were shocked, they said, because he's not like the the rabbis who probably spoke from notes, but he said he speaks with authority. And I think that you have really horribly diminished the character of Jesus in your portrayal. So I just, uh, and it's interesting, going out and trying to recruit a crowd where the gospels say that great crowds followed him. They thronged him everywhere he went and he had trouble even escaping them. Uh, <laughs> and 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 that God Jesus has to go away and be alone. Sometimes he's gone for days at a time. That's not in the scriptures either. We have overnight. We never have days at a time, and he's gone. And because he he can't hear God, and God stops speaking to him. This stuff is what you've done is in your effort to humanize him. You've made him kind of like the rest of us that we sometimes have to go away and get quiet so we can hear the Father. You know, it doesn't even occur to some people that Jesus went away because he and his father were one. He speaks in, in John's gospel in particular about this, this constant, continuous intimacy between him and the father. The great moment on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was because that is the one and only time in his entire earthly existence where he had, did not hear the father's voice where there was silence, where he became the object of God's punishment and discipline and judgment because he took your sin and my sin upon himself. And the only reason he was qualified to do that was because he was without sin, that he was God, holy God, and he was holy man. And to portray him as anything less, I think, is dangerous. Well... To lesser things. There's no, absolutely no chrono- chronological consistency in this. I mean, I I, I have been a student of the, uh, the go- chronology of the uh, Gospels for years. I mean, it's, it's somewhat of an obsessive concern with me because I've really worked very hard over the last uh, probably 40 plus years just on my own trying to make sure that I'm linking all the Gospels together, creating my own parallels, not relying upon somebody else's work, but really just kind of doing it on my own, creating a chronology of the Gospels and showing the consistencies, because oftentimes the different ways that the different Gospels present certain aspects of Jesus's life and ministry and teaching become the grounds for people saying, see, the Bible's full of contradictions and inconsistencies. And one of the things that has always been a passion for me is to really kind of prove that the Gospels are historical. And that means that the details matter. The dates, the times, the places, the the culture, the language, all these things matter significantly. And when you play fast and loose with that and you begin to jumble the events and portray things out of context, you're really, uh, I think, leading to ultimately an invalidation of the biblical story that you may think it's making it more believable or more relatable, but if they're believing and relating to something that isn't the truth, then you're taking people away from the Gospels, not leading them to it. I mean, take, for example, they show Jesus, and it's really interesting. In some little berg out in the middle of nowhere, he comes barging into this synagogue, interrupting the synagogue worship, and he heals a man who has a shriveled hand. Well, let's be clear. that it, We're very clearly told that how it happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. And secondly, Jesus did not barge in. Jesus was the visiting rabbi who was teaching and expounding on the scriptures. And it's in the middle of that service that Jesus reaches out or calls that man forward. And because the Pharisees who were sitting there listening to him were taking issue with his teachings and Jesus basically saying, which is greater, the the power to say you are healed or your sins be forgiven which was a message that Jesus over and over again wanted to communicate because what he was trying to say is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus did not say, I am the law (laughs) again. No, he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he said, "I, I, I will not, not one jot or tittle from the law will be annulled. Rather, he said, it would be fulfilled. So Jesus did not become the law. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law, which was blood sacrifice for sin. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. Jesus did not become the law. But I'm not sure whether or not, I mean, sometimes we're just trying to be so cool, we just kind of overlook the facts, or maybe there's just a weak theology. For example, he has Nicodemus saying, If God did something that contradicted the Torah, would you question God? Now, here again, God wrote the Torah. God does not contradict himself. He doesn't interrupt himself. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't add, he doesn't say this is the complete revelation of God and then tell you to go out and write another one like Joseph Smith did. And that's why I'm saying, what you're really saying is that my impressions or my opinions, my feelings or my thoughts, those trump God's word. I mean, believe me, you and I both had feelings about things. And when we read scriptures, we saw that God said, don't touch that. What was right, my feelings or the word of God? Well, it's the word of God that rules or should rule in my life. So those kind of statements really are deeply troubling and i don't think you'd ever hear that coming out of the mouth of nicodemus because he was a teacher of the law (laughs) fastidiously so and what brought nicodemus to jesus was seeing that jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the completion of its requirements um and so and and of course he has jesus portrayed in the movie as saying can't do god do something new well, you know, everything that God does could be called new to us, but God doesn't do something that contradicts. And that's really the thing that's even being missed in that whole story. It's, it's making it seem like that Jesus is uh, just simply rejecting the Mosaic law instead of fulfilling it. Uh, and I would just say, this is my impression. I, I, I didn't wait long enough to see it, but I'm sure it's coming somewhere in the movie that Mary is portrayed Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, I see hints of Catholicism, you know, like she's just kind of like a little bit too ethereal. Uh, and again, as I said, why, why was there an African-American, a black Joseph, I mean, that's to me is just sheer racial pandering. In this day of of uh, of, of uh, you know political correctness and and every other kind of correctness, gender correctness, on and on. Uh, why would you placate and play to the crowd? I mean, there's one thing we we can be pretty certain that Joseph was a Jew, which means he was uh, a Semitic origins. He undoubtedly had brown skin and dark hair and all those things. But he wasn't an Ethiopian. (laughs) He wasn't an African. He was an Israelite. And uh, that kind of stuff, it it just bothers me because really it shows that what they're trying to do is broaden the audience and kind of appeal to every kind of political sensitivity there is out there. And that's why I think in many ways what we see here, especially as conversations with John the Baptist, is a politically correct Jesus, not a biblical Jesus. I talked about the cultural context bothering me, and there, there were so many obvious faux pas. And I mean, and it's little things that may not matter to you, but to me, <laughs> it takes just a little bit of research. I mean, they have wax candles; they didn't have wax candles. They, they there's there's a pig in the Capernaum marketplace. I mean, this was an Orthodox Jewish town; they didn't have pigs, um, and that it had a red light district. Again, you this wouldn't have happened. That Jesus is arrested by the Romans for questioning. Uh, even the miracle of the fishes takes place in a front of a crowd of twenty people. At that day twenty people that are standing sitting in front of Jesus and they can't hear him, so he has to get into Peter's boat and push off another ten yards so that now they can hear him. I mean, it's stuff like that, I think, is just really I I, thought, I have to sit back. Maybe they just didn't have the budget to afford more than twenty people sitting there. But Jesus got in the boat because the crowds were so great, and it was he got into the boat so that the crowds could hear him because they were large crowds and they were pressing him on every side. So uh, I, I just sit there, and, and the idea that Peter had this load of fish so he could pay off his taxes and and get out from under the thumb of of the Romans. <laughs> I mean, again, you're you're portraying Peter in such a negative way and you're creating a whole scenario that has nothing to do with the scriptures. It's total fabrication and fantasy and fiction that really besmirches the character of Peaver. Well, I would just simply say, obviously, um, uh, Jenkins is not concerned or interested in reaching a Jewish audience uh, because uh, they would not, they would be, they would, turn it off within the first 10 minutes like my wife and I did when we first tried to watch it. But here's it, I get it, I get what they're doing. If you wanna broaden your audience, you need to make it contemporary and you need to dumb it down. And congratulations, you've tremendously succeeded in that. And you've got a lot of Christians who don't know their Bibles who are really excited about it and actually are replacing their Bibles with the movie because it's easier to watch a movie than it is to walk with Jesus. And now, and uh, But I would just simply say, dude, you should never alter the story. You should never add frivolous details so that Jesus looks and sounds more like Lonnie Frisbee in the Jesus Revol- Revolution than he looks like the Jesus of the Bible. I would have some biblical advice for mr jenkins first of all james 3 1 says not many of you should presume to be teachers and i know you're going to tell me well i'm not a pastor i'm not a teacher i'm just a movie maker i'm just a script writer you know you're teaching you can give it any name you want you are teaching and you're presumptuously putting yourself in the role of teaching you have become de facto the pastoral reference for millions of christians I just want you to understand the responsibility because he goes on to say, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And that's something I would, if I were you, I'd be deeply concerned about that. I'm going to have to give account to God for what I've created here. And please don't tell me as one Christian author told me when I confronted him on his book, (laughs) that, uh, he knew it was God's will because he made so much money, uh, (laughs) Uh, I, I have to tell you, that has nothing to do, popularity and money has nothing to do with it. I mean, if that was important, Jesus would have been popular, he would have made a lot of money, and he wouldn't allow himself to be crucified, okay? So, I mean, that whole line of argumentation uh, says more about the person than it says about what you've done. Again, 2 Corinthians eleven four. 4, Paul asks the questions. he says, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached... Can you tell me the Jesus in in the in the chosen is the Jesus that Paul preached? Can you even 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 venture to go there? Because I've read Paul uh, 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 copiously. I mean, I, I I read it, I teach it, I'm I'm in it every day of my life. The writings of Paul and the Jesus I see there doesn't bear any resemblance to the one I see in the in the chosen. Or he says, if you receive a different spirit. From the one you received. Oh, you know, people say, Well, I was inspired to do this. Well, I I believe you are inspired, but I just don't know where that inspiration came from, because there are, as John warned, there are many Antichrist spirits that are in the world. Or he says, a different gospel from the one you accepted. He's then he, he mockingly says to them, You put up with it easily enough. I mean, he's just saying, this is sad. Because this is a different gospel. I'm sorry. It, it may have parts and pieces, but it's, it's not the gospel story. It's a different story. That's why I would close with uh, uh, Galatians 1.6, where Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And I guess I would really address this to those of you who are uh, rabidly fanish of The Chosen he says which is really no gospel at all. Do you notice if you've watched it that Jesus never calls anybody to repentance? That he's always just kind of loving people, but he's never confronting them for their sins. You know, we never find him saying like to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, or he t- tells the uh, the man who was healed at the at the uh, Bethesda pool, he said, you know, uh Quit your sinning and and uh, lest something worse happens to you, you know. Jesus and John both said, "Repent, <laughs> repent." He goes on, and like Paul goes on in Galatians one. He says in verse seven, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Can I let that sink in for a moment? Pervert the gospel of Christ. What is a perversion? It's it's taking something and twisting it it's taking something and twisting it but then he goes on even if we or an angel Hmm, it's interesting what is the name of the production camp company angel production oh but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you let him be eternally condemned i would tell mr jenkins you know if you're LDS friends are really good LDS. uh, I would really question them about who they believe Jesus is. And if they tell you it's the same that you believe, then ask them, but what about the Mormon Jesus? Do you believe that the Mormon uh, doctrine about Jesus is true? If they say, no, we reject that, then, you know, that's good. And then I would counsel them, then why do you still call yourself LDS? Why do you continue with the Mormon church? Because it preaches a false gospel. And it denies the gospel of Christ in the most egregious ways. But anyway, that's something he might want to think about, as if he were listening to what I'm saying. But he says, let him be eternally condemned, so that people who believe, like the LDS church believes, are not going to heaven, they're going to hell. Paul goes on to say, as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned, Paul's basically saying, I can't say it any more strongly than this. That what's at stake here is not uh, market share, it's, it's not income, it's not popularity, it's not how many views or clicks or hits or anything you get. You and I, all of us, who you know, those of you who are listening to me, one day we're going to have to stand before God and give account for our lives. And I would just simply say, stop wasting your time watching something like The Chosen and, and focus on Jesus and focus on His Word. Learn to know who Jesus is. As uh, you know, one young gentleman told me, he says, you know, I was really impressed by it until I started reading the Gospels, and I realized that uh, it was a different Jesus. I pray and hope that you'll see the same thing. May God have mercy upon us all in Jesus' name.